Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Anderson's High Yield Programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. This week's edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovator Podcast focuses on the early days of no-till in the Keystone State. Joel Myers is nearing retirement now, but for 20 years as the NRCS State Agronomist for Pennsylvania, he helped to advocate no-tillage for the gently rolling hills and steeper slopes in northern Appalachia. Of course, no one does a journey this big alone. Joel is eager to point out that innovative dairy owners were among the first to push for no-till in Pennsylvania, and some of his uh, mentors helped him along the way. However, he remains astonished even as lumber is unloaded for his retirement house. How many growers have become no-tillers in his time in the field? In this episode, Joel talks with Frank about his first no-till drill, learning from no-till mentors, and the impact cover crops have had on no-till adoption in Pennsylvania. Here's Joel and Frank. Well, tell me a little history. Are you a Pennsylvania native? Yes, I've been Pennsylvania native. We've had our farm since uh, 1946. Now, it's a family farm, but it's not too big, is it? No, it's a family farm. It's 75 acres. All right. And you and your brother run it? That's that's correct. Uh, my brother had a heart attack four years ago, so it's mostly me now, and we're trying to cut back. We'll probably rent in a year or two, and we have two people that are very conservation-minded, very no-till-minded, and, and they'll do what we want to do, so... That's going to happen. I'm 70. I'll be 80 next February. So you understand, you understand how that works. Yeah. You're younger than I am. I'm 82. So you're catching up to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, your work with the state agronomist with the soil conservation service and then NRCS, you started out on a district level. Actually, I started out as a student trainee. USDA had a student trainee program years and years ago, and I spent two summers with the agency. And then when I graduated, I uh, actually, I, I went, uh, I uh, started in Middleburg, uh, Snyder County. And then I uh, uh, went and got my master's degree and I went back. So that's, uh, then I ended up the last 20 years as state agronomist, which meant I covered all of Pennsylvania, worked with the universities and so forth. So when did you first get involved with no-till? When did you see the merits of this? Well, back in the 80s, I can't exactly pinpoint a year or a date, but mm-hmm. what I can tell you, Frank, I remember being out on the farm in Dolphin, at that time in Dolphin County. I was working with a producer, and I wasn't at that point, I didn't know about no-till drills. And sure. then he told he had no-till corn, and he said he, said he had just gotten a no-till till drill and bang it just hit me in the head hey he can do a total no-till system now Hmm. and i vividly remember you know remember that discussion and we had a no-till corn planter about that time and then we ended up with a a tie uh two-point hitch uh no-till drill and then we've upgraded since to the hay buster uh drill wow hay busters aren't even made anymore i don't think well it's vermeer now all right. no, Same okay, drill. That's right. Just different name on it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. It's it's a it's a, it's a good drill. You need to know how to you know the, to work with it. A little cheaper than most a lot of the other ones, but it's always done well for me. I'm on right. my third one actually. Well, that's good. 
So uh, Pennsylvania is kind of rolling country. You got a lot of a uh, highly erodible ground. Yes. Most of the state that or or not. Uh, it, it varies. It varies somewhat. There's some some uh, uh, river bottom land near the Susquehanna River and so forth. There's some other uh, some other land, limestone land that's that's fairly level. Uh, I'd say moderately sloping. Uh, and then, of course, we have, I don't know what percentage, but I'd say it's well over 50% of the land that really needs to have to have conservation and, say, no-till and cover crops that we look at today. Sure. Let's, uh, let's talk a little about the Chesapeake Bay problem. And these states that have watersheds that flow into the Chesapeake Bay, there's a big kadoo going on. We got we to gotta quit polluting the Chesapeake Bay. So tell me how Pennsylvania fits into that and kind of what the progress we've made or a lack of progress. Well, it, it, it would depend a little bit who you talk to about progress. <laughs> one, one of the issues, as you would be aware, a lot of the no-till and cover cropping, a lot of the work's done on farmers' land by themselves. They didn't have USDA help. They didn't have any cost sharing. They just learned how to do those practices and, and do them well. So we feel we, we aren't where we should be. But we feel we really are in terms of how the land's treated hmm. and how the how the, the cover crops work in. And uh, real quick, I give you an example. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay model: if if you have a small grain and you you uh, use it for cover crop and you put manure on it, you take a hit. You get you don't get the full credit for a cover crop because you put nutrients on it. Okay. Well, my gosh, where else should we put nutrients but on cover crops? Right. So uh, it's it's not consistent. Uh, that's a big issue here in Pennsylvania, and that's another reason we feel we're being not getting full credit for what we're doing. Right. Well, I suppose of all the states where the water flows into Chesapeake Bay, Pennsylvania is probably the the biggest contributor it has the most acreage it flows into the bay, right? I would assume that, Frank. I Maryland I, I'm I think Maryland has a pretty good size acreage. West Virginia less and New York just has a little bit. I'm sorry I don't really have those sure. acres, but we, we are a, sub- a substantial part of the bay and we do have a lot of rolling uh you know, as we talked about earlier, rolling topography that needs some type of treatment. Well, it's amazing where we live. We live in a suburb of Milwaukee, and Lake Michigan is 13 miles from our suburb. And in our suburb, half of the, or maybe a third of the water in our suburb flows into Lake Michigan. And the mm-hmm. other two thir- thirds flows like 150 miles to the Mississippi River. So wow. right, right here, we're 13 miles from Lake Michigan, but where we live, any water we got goes 150 miles to the Mississippi. So it's just kind of amazing what the terrain is and what makes a difference. Yes, yes. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. I guess probably about a third of Pennsylvania is in the Bay. There's some other counties that have and partially in and out. Uh, you would be very familiar with the the transect method that's used to sure. to uh, determine uh, cover cropping as well as, as, as no-till planting. I still serve on a group of uh, uh, technicians that every year do transect surveys. We do a third of the Chesapeake Bay every year, and uh, we're just getting gearing up to, to do that now. And that, that's a strictly random uh, point selected and on a, on a map and, Every third year, we, we check these fields, and we're really the only good source of total information on cover cropping, and pretty much so on the no-till. Now, the No-Till Alliance, uh, of course, gets acres from the people that belong to the alliance and attend sure. their meetings, but those are the more progressive people. Right, right. So let's go back to where the light bulb went off in your head about no-till with this guy with the drain, grain drill. What what did you do and what did you encourage after that point? Well, from that point on, about around that time, we had gotten a, a John Deere no-till corn planter, and I can't tell you exactly how that fit in with the light bulb, 
But about that time, we just got a standard John Deere no-till planter or a planter, uh, and I learned pretty quickly we need to have some type of closing wheels. We were planting in the sod, uh, limestone soil, uh, some clay, and so forth. So number one, at, at, at one point I said to myself, I got to learn the equipment stuff. So I really concentrated over a period of a year, let's just say a year, in really trying to educate myself about equipment. Uh, attending your meetings was certainly one way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you know you knew Lynn Hoffman. Uh, sure. Yeah. And Lynn, Lynn, Lynn was really my mentor. In my or- early days with NRCS, he helped me. We did a lot of things together. And he helped me a lot with with uh, with no till. In fact, I know there was some feedback I heard about where extension agents were a little bit unhappy that Lynch spent more time with me than he did with some of the extension people. But I wanted to learn. I you know I wanted to learn, and so the light bulb went off. I was learning about the equipment, going to your meetings and and other meetings and so forth, and that's when I really started promoting this with farmers. And when I left Dauphin County, probably 10 years later, uh, a lot of people were close to being on the edge. And about that time, John Deere came out with a no-till drill. And Dauphin County, the upper part of Dauphin County was green. And I think within one year, there was probably 15 drills uh, purchased in that county. And that just kind of put the, the, you know, now we had the drill that people would buy. And we had the corn planters, and and then it went from there. And going back, uh, maybe looking 10 years later when I was doing transect surveys, I couldn't believe some of the farmers that I struggled and struggled and didn't get there, but they had gotten there. So I felt I laid some you know groundwork for that to, to happen. Well, I look back at an article we did with you, I think, in 2005, and you talked a little about Lynn and how he had – uh, found out no-till was particularly suited for these small rocky hillsides and et cetera. And uh, he, yes. you pointed out that no-till would cut the labor expense by about 60% and could reduce soil erosion by as much as 90%, where you had 5 to 8% slopes. So was the rest of the Penn State agronomy group on ready to promote no-till at that time, or was Lynn kind of an outcast? Uh, I'd say it was, he wasn't an outcast, but he certainly wasn't supported by, by all the agronomy staff. And I got mm-hmm. to know a fair number of them in my, in my position sure. as, as state agronomist. And the only thing, and this is just for your information, really, the only thing I found over the years working with Lynn, he at some point would admit to a farmer that no till wouldn't work there. Yeah. I never did that. I took it a step further. Now, the, the, the thing that I had in my favor was cover crops, sure. Frank, because when Lynn, Lynn didn't 100% push the system, and, and back then we weren't there yet, but right. I had the system, If I, I think of this to this day, how far would we be right now if we started with cover crops when we started with no-till? Right. We'd well, have had the soil health. We wouldn't have had that ugly transition that we have. Yeah. Well, cover crops is interesting because when I was growing up on our dairy farm in Michigan in the late 40s, my dad was seeding cover crops. We were sle- seeding clover mm. in the fall. And then uh, we were using it for nutrients. We were using it for weed control. And then commercial fertilizers came along and pesticides. And it seems like the country got away from c- cover crops and finally got back to them in the last 10 years or so. Exactly. No, I, I remember that too. That, that uh, I've heard that said by a number of people that went way back on it. And I'd say here in Pennsylvania, I, I think we're the leaders, at least one of the leaders, but I'd say 20 at least 20 years now. And it's been interesting. And the no-till lines is about 12 years old. And uh, it's interesting in that all of the no-till lines people now cover crop. And when they first started with the no-till lines, I don't think some of them were doing that. Right. Now, a lot of them did, but it's kind of, they've carried the, you know, made that work and, and make it part of the system. So early on in this story, it talks about you having a friend who had a thousand acres or so, and you would go plant with him in the spring to get some experience. Yes. 
It, it was a mutual thing. When I was in Dolphin County, I got to know him. In fact, I probably laid strips and contours out for him and built diversions and terraces on say half of his land when I was in Dauphin County. And at one point in time, I got to know him pretty well in the family. He, he and his brother and his dad at that time, they just didn't have time to get everything planted in the spring. And I, I love to plant crops, basically, no, well, only no-till crops anymore right. or for quite a while. But I started helping him in the fall just plant some miscellaneous stuff. And then we seriously got into planting no-till. He, he was one of the ones that got a John Deere uh, 750 drill, hmm. one of the first ones in the county. And so I started out planting soybeans for him, and then it ended up that the corn planter was sitting because he was spraying, and the corn wasn't getting planted. So sure. probably about midway through my career in helping him, we started doing no-till. I started planting all the corn, yeah. and then that, that worked out well. And he and I learned together. He had livestock. He had beef cattle. And we learned together. We learned the manure thing together. And we also learned the amount of acre, you know, big acres versus our 75 acres. Yeah, right. But he was chiseling. He was chiseling everything that, uh, that where manure went, uh, as a, just in general. And I remember one year before he actually went completely to no-till, uh, I talked to him about back at that time with the agency and everything. They were still, you know, taking the chisel plow instead of crooked, uh, pointed, uh, twisted shanks. They went to straight shanks to save more residue. He did that one year, and I noticed that. He didn't tell me or anything. I talked to him about it, and I noticed that year he started doing straight point chisel. But not very long after that, it went completely no-till, and we, we learned how to no-till with manure. And, and, and do it successfully. Right. So that was my plus working with him because we had no livestock. So early on when you worked with these people and you're putting out terraces and contours and grass waterways, if we'd had no-till at that point, would we still be doing terraces and waterways? Uh, waterways, I would say yes. Uh, okay. Terraces, to a lesser extent, well, diversions and terraces, there's still a place for those, Frank, on some of these longer slopes and maybe to protect uh, your next to a, uh, a town or a uh, urban area, somebody's swimming pool. Uh, so we'd have done less, but we'd have still done some. Now, I don't know what the numbers are today, but I know it's it's reduced significantly. Sure. I remember in the early days, in the early 70s, talking to a district, soil conservation guy around Indianapolis, which is totally flat ground. But he made the comment that uh, if we were to put in all the needed terraces and waterways, et cetera, we need in my county, it would take 118 years. Or we could do the same amount of good in one year with no-till. I always remember that comment from him. Mm -hmm. But he, well, he's yeah. in flatland. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was one of my most difficult things as a soil conservationist, working with farmers. And we had in uh, Northumberland County, we had quite a bit of land that was, well, it was between an A and a B slope, say 5%. Sure. You didn't see, you didn't see the serious erosion that you saw on steeper land, but erosion was kind of the hidden thing there. So it was more difficult to get those people to do conservation than it was, than it was the people that have very obvious, obviously gullies and, and so forth. And especially doing structural practices. No till you can fit anywhere. Yeah. So you you got a lot of livestock in uh, Pennsylvania, and you had more before. But tell tell me how you got the manure into the no till system. How you made it work? Uh, okay. Uh, Lynn Lynn helped somewhat with that. First of all, we had to get by the myth that everyone said, and this would be an extension. It would have been your your local ag suppliers, everyone said you had to incorporate your manure. Sure. So we had to do field days and demonstrations and, and so forth where we showed that you could, you could do no-till with manure. And I remember uh, at one point we had gone, an engineer and I had uh, done some uh, overseas work and we learned about manure injection. So very early, I guess this would have been probably in the 1990s, 
we brought some of that technology back with us and we were promoting shallow injection of manure. And I'm talking about a, a straight blade, uh, single blade or, or two blades, but only going in about four inches and, of course, only applying maybe uh, liquid manure, maybe four or five tons or gallons rather than the heavier rates. So that was part of the, the thing we did was, was shallow injection with manure. And we put a lot of data together showing that farmers were not incorporating with tillage manure the day after they applied it anyway. Oftentimes manure was applied, it was in the field for maybe two weeks or more. Well, they were losing all the nitrogen anyway. So when you went to no-till, you really weren't taking a hit because you were losing the nutrients even in their old system. So putting out some data on that certainly helped. So going back to equipment early on, uh, what attachments were you, what attachments in the early days were working well on the planters for you? Well, the first thing, and I'll, I'll use I'll use John Deere. That was the first planter we had, and that my 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 friend had one of the older no-till sure. uh, the what what was the model of the old John Deere no-till planter? I can't think of the model right now, but they're around yet. Anyway, the first thing we did with our own. And Kenny did too, was get rid of the steel wheels. And, or well, they had rubber. We put steel wheels on. Okay, now we could put pressure on and, and close the slot, but we were causing compaction. So we went from, from the rubber wheels to the, to the cast wheels to some type of a, 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 uh, a closing wheel with spike, a spike closing wheel of some sort. Uh, not too long after that, then we got into the road cleaners, the spike road cleaners. And uh, that kind of pretty well got us where we were for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, those just those attachments and making sure everything else was properly adjusted, down pressure. Uh, back those those older planters didn't even have a, an adjustment, an easy adjustment for for down pressure. They had to, the old you had to turn the bolt. You had to have a wrench and turn the bolt sure. to put more down pressure. Well, farmers weren't going to do that too much. Right. Unless you were really, really diligent in in their equipment, so the, I, the row cleaners, the row cleaners, and the spike closing wheels both were very instrumental in in helping no-till move forward in Pennsylvania, because our dairy people, which were really our leaders in no-till, uh, were were no-tilling into sod, and then right. uh, fall killed back then. Fall killed sod was a way to make no-till work in the spring, make it work easier. Now we know the day we want to have something green out there in the spring, but back then, but we have the planters that will do it now. But back then, a, a fall killed sod was the ideal way to start no-till after saw after hay. So today, are you do you, people still running colders, or they got colders off their planters, or what? Uh, I never convinced my friend Kenny to take them off. <laughs> one time, one time he had one. We broke a colder or we had something happened. We couldn't run one unit with colders. Uh-huh. And I made a particular emphasis to, you know, look at that one row because we kept planting. He, he wanted to keep planting and I did yeah. too. And I showed him it was no difference, but yeah. he still, still uses colders to this day. Yeah. Uh, but in general, I think some of our more progressive farmers are not using colders. Of course, the international planner, oh, quite a few years ago now, they came up with, uh, you know, without colders. Right, right. Well, our benchmark data shows among our our no-tours, who are the most innovators? It's gone from like 95% of the planters had colders on to today. It's only about half, so the people are making it work. That, that would sound about right, especially if you look at acres. Right. Because the bigger, you know, the bigger guys are the ones that are doing it, and that's a lot of acres. Compaction concerns. Any concerns with no-till and compaction? Very much so, and that ties right into the manure thing. And and frankly, I don't think we promoted it as much as we needed to back in the earlier days. But to me, the cover crop is a key. Uh, and and using flotation tires, and, and there's more tractor spreaders, and, and I think there's more tractor spreaders and less truck spreaders today, which cause less compaction. Sure. Encouraging farmers not to apply manure when you know when they shouldn't be out there as much as you can. That's you know that's just 
that's just the way it is. Sometimes you've got to be out there. And and also, well, nutrient management regulations would not allow you to fall apply manure on on uh, any without living cover. Right. So that was kind of a stumbling block, but that meant you had to have your cover crop out there. Right. So the cover crop helped in two ways. You could get manure on in the fall with the cover crop when the soil was better or not as wet, and also the fact that it, the roots helped take the, the compaction out of uh, uh, no-till where you were on it with with manure spreaders. Back in the story we did with you, I think in 2005, you were talking about the importance of being able to level the planter. Yes. That's one of the very basic first things, and I don't know. I I wish I I wish you'd have sent me that ahead of time, and maybe it's better you didn't. But I we found out Kenny Kenny's planter itself, and I maybe talked about that then. But he had his planter nose nose front, and that was one reason we had trouble closing the slot, because and, and why we were wearing out colors too fast. Because mm-hmm. we had it nose front, and so it was not closing as well as it should have because the planter wasn't level. So that's been a very basic thing, and you know that's that's gotten lost today, Frank. And the other thing I think's gotten lost today, we forget that there's a lot of farmers, and I don't say a lot, I don't know how many, but there's a number of farmers out there today that are still starting from square one with no till. Sure. And we have to remember that when we're doing meetings and, and workshops and whatever, we need to help them start at, you know, back at that same beginning point. Only now with cover crops, there just isn't the, the issue with the, the, uh, the transition that we had back then. We'll come back to Joel Myers and Frank Lester in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximizing crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons High Yield Programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. question that comes up quite often among no-tillers planting soybeans is what row width is best. At the Commer Research Center in central Illinois, they've done four years of soybean roll spacing studies, and through four years and 16 replications, 15-inch soybean rolls were $48 per acre more profitable than 30-inch soybean rolls. And that was with soybeans valued at only $10 per bushel. And now back to Joel Myers and Frank Lesseter. So are you seeing more and more people planting green? Uh, yes, uh, I, I am. We've, we've planted, we did research with Penn State for four years planting green. Uh, probably four or five years ago was the last year. So we had four years of experience with that. We were using the corn planter with 30-inch rows. It made it so much easier because part of the, the research on that was getting out in the field and observing things and, and so forth. So we, we used to, And the other thing was planting into – my first experience planting into rye uh, probably – well, going ahead – I had I fought I fought with it. My I had to lift the row cleaners off the the closing wheels off the ground, and I had to, I struggled. But what I've learned today with planting green, and I, I've encouraged this because I think some farmers think the only way you plant greens is if you got rye thirty inches high. Yeah. I plant I just finished planting soybeans green, and that's easier than corn. Soybeans planted green is much easier than corn for a number of reasons. But I just finished planting two weeks ago and I wouldn't have been able to get in the field. The rye would took the moisture out enough to let me get in the field to to get you know our soybeans planted. And what oh well the other thing is I'm very happy if it's fifteen inches or or twenty inch fifteen inches is kind of ideal for me. Mm-hmm. And I finished planting this year 
after we had wet conditions and warm temperatures, that rye grew about six inches in less than a week. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have a spray. That's another thing. I didn't have a spray till three days ago. So it was about a week and a half from planting and they had emerged in a week. The plants had emerged in a week and we just got the rice sprayed a few days ago. It's, it's custom spraying and that's the way those things go. And it's fine. Now we've got rain. The rye starting to dry, so it's going to do its positive thing now in terms of helping mulch and protect uh, or save moisture. And also, we've found issues, lack of issues with uh, slugs and planting green. That was one of the big things in Pennsylvania that moved it forward was the uh, helping to control slugs. So, what herbicides did you use to control the rye? Uh. I think he still, again, it's custom. I think he still used Roundup this year. Okay. Uh, my friend Kenny, my friend Kenny uses Paraquat, uh, and I wanted. I think I could reflect too. Number one, planting green, not not having to have stuff immensely tall that causes planter problems. Uh, but the other thing, the last year I planted for Kenny, I think, which was four years ago, uh, he. He normally didn't plant, we didn't normally plant green, but we normally planted when the rye was six inches tall. It got away for him, and he probably sprayed it when it was about 20 inches tall or something like that. And I didn't get to plant those fields till a week, which with Paraquat, that was, it was, it was brown. And it planted nice, and the residue was still there. So you didn't get all the benefit from planting green by killing it ahead. But on the other hand, if it got away for you and you weren't equipped to plant into 30-inch rye, you kill it off and you plant into it dead, and it still provided an awful lot of mulch there, and, you know, and it planted nicely. Yeah. So, so there's some different twists to planting green. Right. You mentioned slugs. What do you, what do, you do if you get an outbreak of slugs? Well, Frank, probably eight years ago, uh, something like that. I, we use we use slug bait. Uh, back at that time, it was just one common brand. I can't even remember what it was now. I still have four bags of slug bait sitting in the barn. <laughs> we haven't we haven't had any issue with slugs since then. Now understand, we're not we're not growing corn regularly in our rotation. Uh, we were till about eight years ago. We've got opequin soil, which is a shallow limestone mixed with better limestone soils. And economically, we just had enough droughty stuff. It wasn't really paying to grow corn, especially with the, you know, the cost today. So we've gone to, I've gone, I've gone to oats. I'm getting hundred bushel oats. That was my goal. And I got hundred bushel oats every time I planted oats, except one time they harvested, uh, it, it was a wet year. We didn't get in the field till late. We got half of that, and the other half was in the field. I didn't have to plant any cover crop after the oats. But but anyway, uh, so we're growing primarily soybeans. I've actually gone two years back-to-back with soybeans now. And planting green works much better with soybeans. You don't have the issue, some of the issues you have with corn. You, earlier, you mentioned there was four, like four reasons why it was better to plant green soybeans and corn. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Number one, there's a possibility of some some disease issues with, with, with planting green. But the, 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 the one thing is corn will not emerge and grow in cover, in rye cover like soybeans will. That might be the, actually the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got a little bit of difference in terms of the fertility program and 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 really the in, the insect I, I guess the the pesticide issue and so forth. I I'm not sure if that's four or not, but right. Well, that's uh, fine. Okay, okay. I'm uh, fascinated by your growing oats. Why do you do that? Well, it was a good rotational crop. Uh, understanding that my brother had a heart attack four years ago, so essentially I'm doing the planning. We have custom harvesting, we have custom spraying, and so forth. Oats took the least amount of custom work. Okay. Uh, growing it, rotating it with uh, soybeans, I was putting about 50 pounds of nitrogen on to get 100 bushel of oats. And 
other than the burn down where there was one spray application to kill the broadleaf weeds, we did sell the uh, straw in some cases. Hmm. So it was simplest crop I could grow. And we were getting a decent price. I mean, you weren't going to make big money, but you weren't going to lose money. And in our soils where we did have some shallow soils and droughty soils, as I said, we got a hundred bushel. We got a hundred bushel oats, which I thought was it's way above the average. Right. No, that's and, and we got to say, so we got a decent price. And then if we sold the straw and then we, of course we put cover crop in, if we sold the straw. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other opportunity It gave you a window to put a cover crop in uh, for the following crop, which was with soybeans in the way we were rotating. I, and I heard last year, you, you would know better than I, that the oats price had spiked to like $7 a bushel or something like that. I don't right. know if you confirm that or not, but at $7 a bushel, I'll grow, I'll grow oats maybe, no, every other year I would. Right. We, we were very fortunate. For the soils we have last year, I got 60 bushel soybeans, and I couldn't believe it because with groundhogs and deer, I, I was hoping for 50. But, and that was over the scale, so we actually got 60 bushel last year. That was planted green, and uh, it followed oats. Right. So uh, we, but that's not. It, we don't expect that every year. We don't get the moisture every year. Well, we got a lot of people that like oatmeal for breakfast, and Quaker Oats will tell you that they have trouble getting enough oats because we're planting less and less oats every year. We probably need to, you know, work on that market a little bit. Uh, Pennsylvania has quite a few horses. And most of the, I think most of the oats here goes for uh, horse feed, but uh, maybe I need to, where are they headquartered? I think Chicago, but I think they got a big processing plant in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Okay. Of course, out, not not near us, but right. anyway, we'll have to keep that in mind down the road. Well, but it's a, a good diver- it's a good crop to diversify with. Right, right. What do you use? You're using cereal rye pretty much as a cover crop? I'm using, well, last year, and this is Pennsylvania, central part of the state, soybeans came off the beginning of November. I was actually planting cover crop as they were combining. Uh, so my, my cover crop got planted on November 7th. And as, as I mentioned, when I planted the beans, which was pretty timely, it was already 12 to 15 inches tall. Hmm. So, so cereal rye, I, I have mixed. I have used wheat when I could get wheat cheaper than rye, and I have not seen a lot of difference between wheat and rye. Possibly the latter growth in the in the spring. Now, if you're going for feed, for animal forage, that's a different story. Sure. But I I do like wheat, and I didn't plant any last year because I had the rye. But I have used I have used wheat successfully. And the other thing, Frank, if I can get it in early enough, I like half oats and half cereal rye. Or half wheat. The oats comes quicker in the fall. It freezes out. Then, especially if you're planting green, you won't have so much to plant into in the spring. Now, I planted the rye I planted November 7th. I cut back. I say cut back because I usually use two bushel. I planted a bushel and a half. And the way that grew, I could have planted a bushel last last year hmm. in, under those conditions and had plenty of cover. Are you trying anything new this year? No, the beans are in the ground. I planted green, and uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm 79, and I guess I, I don't. I kind of run out of new things. It's, it's like the USDA programs. They have some incentive programs and things, but, and I, I'm not interested in getting cost share anyway. But I kind of like. I, they don't really have anything to offer that I haven't already kind of worked with. So. So no, I, I did cut my population down. Uh, according to well, according to actual calculation, I I planted 155,000 seeds for soybeans this year. I, I planted one notch higher last year, which was probably 160. I'm sure I could cut that back. And I mean, I remember the the talks in your meetings where they, you know, cut way back and still did good. I would be okay at uh, probably 140,000. Uh, now that's with a corn planter and with row cleaners and spike closing wheels. So I got, you know, good depth control and good, you know, good planning that way. Well, it's like Marion Commer. Marion Commer's done a lot of 
population, different populations on soybeans, and he's gotten down as low as 80,000 plants per acre, and it looks like it looks good, but he doesn't have the courage to do that on his whole acreage either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I know. I, I, I refer, I, when I think of this, I think of Marion, and, and uh, I wonder what he actually has cut back to on his majority of his acres. I think, I don't know. I think he's around 120,000 or so, but. Uh, okay. He, so he's cut okay. back some. But. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always wondered about that too a little bit, but I mean, the numbers, the numbers are there. Well, I, the first year we did the research with planting green, I was planting probably around a hundred, maybe less than 150 and Penn state wouldn't let me plant that low in their, in their experiment. I had a, I think I had a plant at 170 to, to keep them happy that first year. Yeah. And uh, then I cut back and I'm working my way back down again. So in your rotation, you've got oats and you've got soybeans. You've got anything else? That's basically it right now. Okay. That's basically what I'm equipped to handle here. It's, it's two good crops. I think with going planting green, I can do two years of soybeans. And probably next year I'll grow oats. Yeah, it just depends. I mean, I, I couldn't believe we only got what, $13 a bushel for soybeans this past year. But, sure. uh, of course, the input costs were up some, but that was a pretty good crop for us. So I thought, well, we're going to try it again. So we'll have to right. see about next year. Right. And, but that's all. That's it. I would love to grow sunflowers. I have a, a neighbor here that's growing sunflowers. I have a neighbor here growing hemp. I don't want to go into hemp, but he's been very diligent in, in doing that. He's had to develop the market and everything. And he's even done research for the fiber that when you combine the fiber that's left, he's growing beef cattle. And he did research last year in using the, the fiber for for uh, beef cattle feed. Right. So interesting. Interesting. I know he's never been to your meeting, but he's a very good no-tailer. And he really, uh, you know, is into doing doing things right. Right. So, so I can so, look at some other people's mistakes or, or, you know, learn from that, but, uh, they're successful with no-till both with hemp and also, uh, with sunflowers. So talking about mistakes, it seems to me, and I, I've heard you preach this, that you, you got a no-till system and if you do one little thing wrong, it may mess the whole thing up. Is that right? That's correct. And I guess the biggest single thing when I think about it, Frank, and I've, I've had, I've had the opportunity to have classes here for nutrient man for the Pennsylvania nutrient management program every year and also a Penn state class. So I've had the opportunity to spend more time in the field than I would otherwise. But Frank, I, I have noticed a little bit of platiness, even with, with uh, say 3% organic matter. If I don't grow a cover crop uh, and I would see this with my classes when I was out and I actually saw it here this spring again, and I had the cover crop there, so I know it'll be okay. But the one year I can remember, probably 20 years ago, we no-tilled corn. We weren't doing cover crop. It was probably after soybeans. And we had uh, heavy rains before planting. We had heavy rains after planting. We had severe erosion. And that was partly because the soil was already compacted from heavy rain, bare soils before planting and then all through the summer. And we had a horrific runoff and erosion that year. And it was dead. And what it was causing was all dead first from when we plowed years ago. Oh, okay, right. So I had to, and I couldn't do a thing once the crop was planted. Hmm. I just had to kind of green and bear it. So uh, we took care of those dead first <laughs> that fall. What'd you do with them? That, that's the biggest. Well, we just got them closed off and, okay. you know, we blocked them some places and, this was like running one, probably one, not more than 2% from the, the our buildings, probably, oh my gosh, eight, 800 yards or something like that. Sure. It was a long ways. It was leading water and it broke across the, the field and, and caused the problem. Mm -hmm. So, so we just tried to close them up enough so the water could never move that distance again. Right. And I, I was ready. I was ready to actually put a structural practice in there in the waterway, and that's about the time we started cover cropping, and never had that again. Right. So we talk about regenerative ag and soil health and sustainability, and we've had. I mean, the key parts of it are no-till, 
crop rotation, cover crops, and that's something a lot of our no-tillers have been doing for 30, 40 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> Especially, and the dairy, I don't know about Wisconsin. I mean, you've got dairy, too. But our, definitely our dairy farmers were the leaders here Yeah. in Pennsylvania. Uh, even though they weren't doing quite the rotation back then, uh, and the biggest thing there that hurt them was the silage corn. But you're exactly right. It's it's those three things. And that last publication that Assured and, and uh, Lisa and I put together, that really was kind of our, it put everything together. Right. Uh, the rotations, nutrient management, and, and, and all those things. So soil biology, has it changed on your farm? I had I haven't had a uh, I had the Cornell Cornell soil test which gives you biology and so forth done about well, probably ten years ago now mm-hmm. it was it was above it was above average I, it wasn't like the top but it was above average uh, I had I we've gone we've gone to uh, uh, fertilizer uh, by. Variable rate fertilization sure. now, okay. and we've had the, we've had the, uh, the the uh, instrumentation, you know, map the fields and and everything, and uh, so what 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 I have found is on our hillsides where we have more clay, we're probably we're we're over four percent organic matter. Okay. The deeper soils, the loamier soils, we're we're at two and a half to three percent. I don't still completely understand that, except I know the CEC is greater with your clays, mm-hmm. and that apparently there's a, a direct correlation between CEC and and uh, soil health. I know we saw beetles and we saw the insects when we started doing planting green because Penn State was out and looked at that, and, and I've learned about some of the beetles and, and so forth that we need there to help control the slugs and so forth. I still use night crawlers and earthworms as an indicator. I can remember numerous uh, situations where I was out. One particular, I was planting a rented land for my friend Kenny, and this farmer was out. We actually put the whole farm in, in one crop, and it, it originally had contour strips, strips in it, and no, no erosion problems. But he's looking at this, and this whole thing is sprayed, and it's brown, and, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of whatever, and I stop the planting. I showed us some nightcrawler middens and I think I got through to them. I never heard anything negative after that, but I just showed them nightcrawler middens and said, this shows you it's an indicator of soil health. Yeah. Uh, without all the, with all, all the, the bells and whistles and everything. I like, uh, as far as trying to show farmers things is the infiltration test. There's all kind of complicated, complex tests and so forth as you know, but to, to me, uh, the infiltration test kind of shows it all. Right. If you've got good infiltration, you've got the, those bugs and, and the earthworms and night crawlers and so forth. I remember up in Bradford County once, uh, uh, we, we had done a field day. It was about a week after they had four inches of rain and I had my infiltration rings along, didn't plan this. And so I was doing a field day. I was doing infiltration rings. And so I put an inch on it, went in in less than a minute, put a second inch on. I think it was maybe a minute and a half. Anyway, I put four inches of water in that, and it, it infiltrated in less than three minutes. Wow. And after they had just observed this four-inch rain, it kind of had a little more, you know, it made a little more sense to them. Hmm. And it it was ideal conditions, Frank, because it was – it was sawed. It had been first year to- the corn after sawed, so I had a lot going for me there too. But still, it was it was, it was impressive to see that infiltration. Yeah. So we've been talking about fifty minutes now, and it's been great. Anything that I've missed asking you about that you'd like to talk about? Oh, one other thing I would say: I had gone to a couple of your meetings, and then USDA wasn't supporting me to go anymore, and so forth, and. You know, I worked closely with Steve Groff back in the old, back way sure. back. And Steve's the one that I give credit, a lot of credit to besides Lynn, because Steve got me. In fact, he actually shared a room with me that first year when NRCS wouldn't, you know, pay for anything. Mm-hmm. He shared my room with me. And after that, I, I just started paying, you know, myself to go. But sure. Steve's the one that got me reinvigorated 
got me out there to one more meeting, and after that, I hadn't missed a meeting till until you know recently. Well, he's Mr. Optimism. There's no doubt about that. He's done very yeah. well. So you're building a retirement home at the farm? Yeah, we're building a retirement home at the farm. In fact, they just delivered lumber today to start framing it. So this this just came up about five weeks ago. My wife and I were talking, and I have a I have a you've never been in my home, but I have a, a 300 acres of mountain land and a a, a house and fairly large house with a two tenths of a mile lane uphill to get to, and it's just gotten to be too much for me. And I have a friend who's going to buy the property. I can still hunt here. I can still use the property, and he's going to take good care of it. So it's an ideal, ideal situation. That was Joel Myers and Frank Lesker talking about no-till adoption in the early 1980s. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lesser one more time. A reader asked me recently, well, what you talk about earthworms all the time, but what are the ideal living conditions for an earthworm? This comes from some work at Purdue University in which they say that they require an environment with lots of crop residue and a calcium-rich soil. They like shaded conditions, such as might be provided by no-till residue or cover crops. Earthworms can tolerate a range of temperatures from freezing to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They live in almost all soil types, except very coarse soils, such as sands and very acidic soils. So if you're no-tilling, you've probably already got a good type of uh, growing condition for getting more earthworms. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcast. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast. That'll get you an alert as soon as we release a future episode. Uh, You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.